0: Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Mari Judah. Korah. It begins by introducing some names to us of some individuals. It says, verse 1, now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Aviram and the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Pelath, son of Reuben, took action. These names, as a result of taking the actions they will, have become immortalized. For it's in the name Korah that for generations in past and generations in the future will be synonymous with the word rebellion. Rebellion against God's leadership, rebellion against God, Rebellion. It's like the, uh, maybe kind of like the movie or the story you've heard, the Cain Mutiny. Cain is the name associated with mutiny. And within those that, like myself, who served in the Navy for the nautical tradition, there's a very special meaning to the word mutiny in the Navy. Mutiny in the Navy means death. And in spiritual terms, the name Korah means rebellion, and it too. Means death. Just to show you how strongly that theme has carried through, if you turn with me very briefly to the book of Jude, there Jude, who writing in the New Testament memorializes certain names that are clear spiritual lessons to us. In Jude verse 11, it says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And in fact, what the Jude is writing here is that there are three names that are synonymous with not so good things. The Korah, the name Korah, is associated with the concept of rebellion Now I don't want to spend a whole lot of time dwelling on necessarily why he rebelled, but suffice it to say that he did. He had his reasons. They were insufficient to be correct and right. But what is really intriguing is to see how particularly Moses deals with this. Now you have heard me teach before that the Torah has messages and warnings and principles that should be used by not only all people, but in particular should be paid attention to by that group of people known as the last generation. Because we know that the lessons from the wilderness, and this is the book in the wilderness, that it says that those same lessons are for our admonition and our instruction upon whom will fall at the end of the ages. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 that there are principles and lessons that are in here that the last generation is going to have to come to terms with. They are going to be put to the same test. It's in this struggle with Korah and this rebellion that takes place in the wilderness that it really speaks to a great future event that is going to take place in the Great Tribulation. And the key to knowing that has to do with the instruction that Moses gives here. Let me read on for you, and I'll point out to what Moses' instruction was with regard to this. Verse 2, And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. And they assembled together against Moses and Aaron, and they said, You have gone too far for all the congregation are holy every one of them and the lord is in their midst so why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the lord first of all let me examine the statements that's being made by him and let's see how truth gets mixed with air just a little bit you have gone far enough for all the congregation are holy you will note the word are It's not, he didn't say the congregation is holy. And in the Hebrew, it's very emphatically made the plural. Not the congregation is holy, meaning the congregation of Israel that God has pulled out, that God has made them holy, and to be in the camp is to be holy, and be out of the camp is to be unholy. But instead what he says is, every individual in the congregation, they are holy. Is that really true? No, it's not true. And in fact, Kor himself is proving it. Cor himself is proving that he is riding on the good favor of the congregation. He's riding on the good favor of being in the tribe of Levi. And he's exploiting that for everything that it is. He's not standing on his own merits. Moses doesn't stand on his own merits. He says, I'm the servant of God. Do I do whatever God tells me to do? He doesn't say, I'm holy. He says, God is holy. So the very first thing that's taking place is essentially what Korah is saying to Moses. Moses, why do, you, why do you do these things to the people? Why are you making yourself above the people? Aren't they all holy? Well, let's think about that for a moment. What was the portion that was just before this? The portion that was just before this was ten times they have tested the Lord... And now they've rejected the promised land, they've rejected God, now they're being punished by God, that that generation shall die in the wilderness, these are holy people? Obviously not. Now it may be that the congregation and the camp of God, because of God's presence, that's holy, but individually They have already proven that. They are under God's judgment at this moment. And yet, Korah twists this. And he tries to make an argument for their... They're individually holy, so why are you doing Moses these things to them? So his argument fundamentally is flawed. The Lord is in their midst. Yes, that's true. So why do you exalt yourself? He doesn't exalt himself. He's been in the service of God for a lot of years. He didn't seek the job. God gave him the job. Scripture says that we humble ourselves unto the Lord, and He exalts us in due time. They saw Moses exalted, but it was by the hand of God that he was exalted, not by Moses' hand. In fact, the scripture goes on to say, Moses was the most humble and meek person in all of the earth, therefore God exalted him. To bring glory to his own name. So if they're taking issue with the fact that Moses has been exalted, they're taking issue with the work of the Lord. But yet they twist it, they turn it, they say, no, he's, Moses is trying to do his own thing here. Moses is trying to lord it over us. He's trying to be in charge and so forth. Verse 4, when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, Tomorrow morning... The Lord will show you who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose. He will bring near to himself. Not what you say, Korah, but what the Lord says is what will happen. And we will see who really is holy. You said everybody's holy. Let's see what God says is holy since he is holy. Verse 5, and he spoke to Korah, he says, bring him near to yourself. Verse 6, do this, and this is the intriguing part for the sages of Israel. Take censers for yourself, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. There is one duty in the priesthood, in the temple service, that is the exclusive right of the great high priest. Are you aware of what that is? There's one particular duty. Normally, the the priests when they serve in the temple, it's by the casting of lots to determine which duty each does what. But there's one particular duty that if the high priest says, I wish to do that one, it's his to do. It is the offering of this fragrant incense before the Lord. It was that part when they would go in in the morning and they put fresh incense on the golden altar. It's not the trimming of the lamps or putting the morning sacrifice up or doing the other duties and so forth. If the high priest said, that's the one I want to do, it was his exclusive right to do so. And the issue here is is that the sages believe that Korah was coming uh, to um, take issue with that particular branch of the Levites who had been made priest of, of the line of Aaron it is said that Korah was under the firstborn line of Levi, and so he's challenging and saying, why is it not the firstborn of Levi that is now serving as priest? Why do you do this yourself? Why do you take this on yourself? Well, of course, the answer is because they didn't choose it. The Lord chose them. The Lord said through Aaron would be the priesthood, specifically within Levi. But Korah wants to come in, and he wants to usurp that. He wants to have his say. He wants to be high priest. Now, it comes down to the question, you know, there, there's a lot of writings about, well, why did Korah think that? And, and I've given you one, one reason. The other is, of course, was that he was handsome. It was said of Korah that he was a good-looking guy. He was a tall, statuesque Handsome, chiseled looking features and so forth. And obviously, he had charisma. I mean, he had 250 princes. I mean, so obviously, he had some intellect. He had some ability to speak. You know, publicly, if you can lead 250 princes, Moses, you remember, he kind of stumbles in the lips. He's probably not a real good orator probably pauses at the wrong time, doesn't quite flow right. You know what I'm saying? In other words, it's hard to kind of listen to him. But Korah, it was a pleasure to hear him. Stimulating, charismatic, handsome. He also sang real good in the shower. If you understand my joke. In other words, there was a lot of reasons why he thought he should be, but are those reasons to be leaders? Is that the reason to be high priest of Israel? Or even even his argument with regard to being the firstborn of the line of Levi is that sufficient reason? You'll notice that he joins up with a couple of other fellows, Dathan and Aviram, sons of Eliov and on An, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. Who's Reuben? Firstborn of Israel. How come they're not the tribe to have the scepter? How come they're not the tribe that should be ruling over all Israel? They're firstborn. Doesn't God say firstborn have certain privileges above others? That they're recognized in a special way by the living God? How come Reuben is not in charge? How come Moses is in charge? Well, we can go back and find all kinds of evidence to say why. But on this particular day, they're questioning this. I take you back to the instance of when they left Egypt. You remember, you know, Moses raised his staff, God opened up the Red Sea, the children of Israel went across on dry land, they were saved, the waters came back, they destroyed uh, Pharaoh's chariots and so forth. You know what all the people of Israel stood up and said? Truly there is a God, and Moses is his servant. They rejoiced. Moses is his servant. There's no question about that. Well, here we are about two months later. Who is this Moses? What happened there? What happened that on one day it's all clear, it's straight, we see the miracles of God, everything is confirmed, it's all, everybody's happy with it, and the next day we don't remember any of that. The next day... It's like another day. It's like all of a sudden we just all of a sudden showed up here in the wilderness and we don't remember anything that's happened in the past or what has taken place. Korah and the 250 princes, Dathan, Aviram, and on, they were standing on the same shore there at the Red Sea, and they too, with the rest of Israel, had proclaimed, Moses is the servant of God. Now they come questioning? Within two months. Well, what about the stuff in the past? What is it about us as people? And I expand this question beyond Israel. What is it about us that God can do good things to us, answer prayers for us? In previous days, but we come to this day, and this day's troubles or problems or whatever is so overwhelming that none of what has happened in the past can carry over and has any benefit to us. Or that there might be, that question's already been asked and answered, and we somehow can't bring that forward. Paul teaches us that in our faith in our walk before God, there are three things that stand out above other things. Faith, love, and hope. So those three things are definitely a part of our life, and that one of them stands out greater than the other. Love, love is the greatest one of them. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there is a... I think the reason why Paul jumped on that, not only because that's the teaching of Moses and the prophets and Yeshua and all the apostles, however, there is a dimension of time involved in those three things. Now, I'm not going to walk you through all the scriptures, of, but follow along with me here for a moment. Faith is based on promises of God, things of the past. If you have a promise, it's because somebody in the past has given you a promise, There's a little dimension of the past there. Faith, faith that grows and builds, builds upon things that have happened in the past and increases with events that take place. Love is always in the present tense. You can't love somebody in the past, you can't love somebody in the future, but you can love them today. And love is service. Love is always in the present tense. Hope is is always in the future. The scripture says we hope for the resurrection. It's not here yet. It's a future thing out there. And basically what Paul's taught us in that, and what if you were to follow through all the different teachings, and there are a multitude of verses, I, I don't have time to go into it as a specific teaching, but... Join with me for just a moment and and understand that faith always deals with things of the past. Love always deals with things of the present. Hope is always things of the future. And when we pull them all together in the same day that we walk, we walk uprightly before God. We're encouraged. We're exhorted. We believe. It's, It's the model of believing. Why is love so much in the present? Because what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Second one, like unto it, love your neighbor. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is where reality is every day. Will you love God and obey him? Will you love your neighbor and treat him with kindness? Every day you make the decision. And in fact, every day, the walk of our faith is, you get up every day and you remember the Lord. You remember what the Lord has done, and you bring forward into this day your faith, your confidence toward God. He's done it before. He'll do it again. He helped me before. He'll help me this day. Love, you know, is always that working component of all of our behavior. And hope, of course, is, boy, we hope for the best. We hope for the future. You know what Korah did and Dathan and Aviram did? They forgot the past. They got up this day and they brought no faith in God forward. You know what the scripture says of them? They didn't believe. How can they say they didn't believe? Didn't they acknowledge God? Didn't they say there was a real God? Didn't they use God's name, everything? No. What it's talking about is all the things that God has done in the past, all the promises that God has made, all the things that he's already accomplished and done, the things he did with Moses, they don't bring those forward into this day. They want to leave those behind. Let's, let's forget that we said Moses is the servant of God. Let's forget the past. Let's not, let's not bring up all those good things that God has done. Let's put him to the test again this day. If you're going to walk away from your faith, you have to forget the past. You have to forget the past. If you're going to renew your faith, you have to renew what has God said in the past. What promises has he made to us? And we make a decision. Are we going to believe those promises? Are we going to bring those promises forward today and deal with them and count on them and rely on them? Or are we just going to leave them in the past and ignore them and forget them? And basically, that's what's happening here. Cora and the others, they want to forget the past. They want to forget what Reuben, their father, did. They want to forget the blessing of Jacob and how he put the blessing upon Judah and upon Ephraim and how he anointed God, anointed Levi, Moses, and Aaron. Things of the past. They want to forget all that. They want to change things. And they to change things, they can't deal with the past. I find it real ironic that one of the big to-dos in the Congress is somebody trying to slip an amendment through the Senate about that it will permit any school, if they wish, not mandatory, not required, but if any school wants to post, or any courtroom wants to post the Ten Commandments, they'd be given the freedom to do so, and everybody's having a screaming fit over it. Let us not bring those words there from the past Because if we bring those words forward from the past, then we're accountable to the past. We're accountable to the promises of God and the commandments of God and the statements of God. Because the natural question is, who said these? Whose commandments are they? And that is at the heart of rebellion. To rebel, you must dismiss the past. You must try to change the present. Set a new future. That's at the heart of rebellion. So, to solve this problem, Moses says, let's put the past to the test. Let's put the present to the test. Let's put the future to the test. Let's take all of these things and let us see what God will do with these things. And he says, do this, take censors for yourself. Now, a yes, sensor is a, it's like a fire pan, it's, it's a It's a metal container that you could put coals of fire into and there was usually a chain or some sort of suspension device and then you'd pile the incense in and it would hang and the incense would burn and you could take this and hang it in your tent or you could and the the sweet fragrance from the incense was a way to permeate a room and cause the fragrance to be pleasant or you could carry it into the assembly and it would be a sweet Fragrance. Again, the high priest. This was his duty. This was his privilege to go in and do this in the temple service each day. It was. It's a. It has a lot to do with what sort of um, air that you want to cast before your guests, before your family members. What sort of fragrance? that you want to stimulate. Fragrance is one of the most powerful senses in terms of affecting your mood, your disposition. I can guarantee you, wives, if you want to have a happy husband when he comes home from work, take an onion, throw it in the oven, turn the oven on, just let it cook that stupid onion, and when he walks in, he smells the fragrance of his home, and it doesn't make any difference whether it's macaroni or tuna or whatever. He's in a good mood. Supper, boy, and man, his saliva starts moving. He's, he's ready for supper. Oh, man, whatever you're cooking, boy, it smells great. What what has happened? A fragrance has stimulated his whole mood, changed his whole disposition. Now he's he's ready to be part of the family and so forth. What does God do with the incense? He changes your disposition before you come before him. You would take a sniff of that fragrance and it would command your attention. You would suddenly humble up, recognize that you're coming into the presence of God. You'd be very careful and you would be reverent in your manner. And it was a sweet fragrance of the Lord. And the Lord says that our prayers, when we come before him, rise up before him like a sweet fragrance to increase his disposition to hear our petitions and our prayers. So if you want to affect someone, if you really want to appease someone, you really want to reach out to someone, it's through the censor. And since this was the duty of Aaron, this was what was at stake. So he said, do this. All of you, get your censors. Like Aaron, who goes in and treats the Lord each day, you bring your censor, let's see who the Lord responds to. Bring your best incense. Bring your best censer. Put your best foot forward. See if the fragrance of your censer will not turn the favor of God toward you. Now, the sages of Israel say that Moses didn't say this by the command of God. It doesn't say... And God told Moses to do this. Now, there's lots of other places in the Torah that it says specifically, God, Moses gives attribution. It says, the Lord told me. Nowhere in this story does it say, and God told Moses to do this. So what is Moses doing here? Is he kind of, you know, loose gun on deck? He's kind of doing his own thing. What What is happening? The sages of Israel say, this is one of the clearest evidences in Torah Of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now you've read where Peter referring to it said, and the prophets moved by the Holy Spirit did do certain things and write certain things. They say this is one of the evidences of Moses was moved by the Spirit of God. Not by the voice of God, necessarily at the tent of meeting or from the cloud, but the Spirit of God moved him to do this. Tells him to put fire in and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. The man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, your sons of Levi. No farther. Verse 8, then Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation to bring you near to himself and to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? That he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you, and are you seeking for the priesthood also? Let's expose you, Korah, for what you're really after. What's your objective? What's the agenda, Korah? Why why are you coming against? What's the agenda? Moses penetrates, goes for, what's the agenda? By the way, this is how you solve conflicts. If you have conflicts among brethren and somebody's agitated and coming, the question must be asked, what is it that you seek? What do you want? And you must pursue that to find resolution in the conflict. Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you should grumble against him? It's kind of a defense of Aaron. It says, look, you're coming after me. I understand that. You want this position of honor and respect. You've rallied up all these guys. Why are you picking on Aaron? What Aaron do to you? Nothing. All Aaron was doing was doing what he was told to do. But they want to pick on him. So it goes on to say that also he, now that's dealing with Korah, and now he's got to deal with Dathan and Aviram. Verse 12, then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Aviram, sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come up. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of the land flowing of milk and honey? I want you to note that expression. They're referring to Egypt. Egypt is not the land flowing with milk and honey. But they take the words of the promise and they twist them. And they make reference to Egypt and they say, Egypt was the land flowing with milk and honey. And to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us. Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us the inheritance of fields and vineyards. See, Moses, you made promises to us and and you haven't fulfilled them. Hey, we know the answer on this one. Let's stop and think. What, what are the facts? Okay, God brought them up to the Kadesh Barnea. They were supposed to go in and take the land flowing with milk and honey, but you know, remember, they sent the spies in. The spies came back, gave a bad report. They died, and we're stuck in this wilderness. Why? Because we rejected the land flowing full of milk and honey. But on the other side of the page, the people are saying, the people are complaining, they've twisted everything. Oh, it's Egypt that was the land flowing full of milk and honey, and you, Moses, haven't fulfilled your promise. <laughs> you know what, I was supposed to believe for you? You see how they twisted it to make an argument? I mean, they're using the same words, but they're, there's, there's no truth here. No truth. And furthermore, in this conflict, they've come to the point we will not go up and talk to you. By the way, that's a dead giveaway clue that if you're in rebellion and in conflict with other people, when they cease to talk to you, it's like Dathan and Aviram. There's not going to be any resolution here if we're not going to communicate with each other. I will not speak with that brother over there. Oh, that's good. That means no solution. So don't tell me you're for a solution. Because there can't be solution if we can't meet and talk in the Hebrew way of rendering a conversation. And this happened in the trial of Yeshua. Do you remember specifically in the trial when Yeshua was being tried that he asked a question to the high priest and the servant slapped him? How dare you talk to the high priest that way? And he responds, he says, what do you mean? I'm just asking a question. How can we communicate if, I, if, if we both can't ask questions? Because it is understood in the Hebrew culture, you haven't really had a conversation unless both sides have had the opportunity to ask questions. If one side is talking and giving statements, the other side's listening, there wasn't much communication. You can't go back and say, yeah, we discussed it. You can go back and say, well, I heard, (laughs) but no, we didn't get a chance to discuss it, because I didn't get a chance to ask any questions. And at this particular point, Dath and the Naviram have moved to the mode of making statements, not asking questions, and Moses can't ask any questions. Therefore, all the communication is broken down. No hope. There's no hope to resolve this. Instead, there's just the certainty of judgment that awaits. It's just a question of t- how much time before judgment takes place. Verse 15, Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. And Moses said to Korah, You and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and you. And they along with Aaron. And each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 fire pans. And also you and Aaron shall bring his fire pans. So they each took his own censer and put fire on it, laid incense on it, and they stood at the doorway of the tent of the meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the congregation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, and Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. Oh, that's right. God's involved in this. <laughs> God has an opinion. You know what generally happens, you know, when we don't bring faith forward on a daily basis. When we get into conflict, the same mistake is we leave God out of the argument. We leave God out of the conflict. We just make it a one-on-one, a one-on-two kind of thing, but we don't want to let God in here, in this deal. And usually at the time that God does get permitted to come back into it, then it's usually time for judgment. Then God's going to have something to say. And he suggests to Moses that they should separate themselves, And but Moses pleads for the congregation and Verse 22, But they fell on their faces and said, O God, thou God of the Spirit of all flesh, when one man sins, wilt thou be angry with the entire congregation? Because it appears at this moment God's going to judge all of them. All three million for the behavior of three. Is God being fair there? Is that right? Does God have a right to judge all of the people? I mean, there was probably some guys back there that didn't even know this thing was going on. they just back there doing their own thing in their tent and probably doing some embroidery. And, and it was after the fact they found out some guy named Dathan got upset with Moses and, and what happened to him. And he said, wow. you know." And, and if the Holy Spirit were to walk him and say, by the way, you were about that close to being gone. Because God got upset about all that. Folks, I have news for you. In the world that we live in, we live in a world... That the God is getting very angry about. We ourselves are that close to judgment. We, you and me, we're that close. Don't you remember the commandments that it says if someone's murdered in a city, that they have to bring the elders to the city because the whole city is going to be judged guilty? In? How many murders in our city? God is the God of the living. He wants to have an accounting for all behavior. And he says that, yes, if we as a part of that community contribute to the atmosphere that bred this disobedience, this misconduct, this rebellion, we too get lumped in with them. And, oh, by the way, God's right. And if he wants to exercise judgment and judges. He has the right to do it. He has a a right to judge the whole city, the whole nation, and the whole world. He has the right. If he doesn't, he's not God. Think about it. In any case, Moses begins to argue the case and appeals to the mercy of God. And he says, let's let's hold those people accountable, Lord. So now it says, verse 23, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Aviram. Doesn't mention On there anymore. I think On repented, maybe. I think maybe he's the one guy that figured out what was going on here, and he said, I don't think I want to do this. Anyways, these three guys are left. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Aviram, went to them where they were at, they wouldn't come, with the elders of Israel following, and he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing that belongs to them, lest you be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan and Aviram, and Dathan and Aviram came out, stood at the doorway of their tents, along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing if these men die the die of death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens his mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. Then it came about, as he had finished speaking all these words, that the ground was under them split open. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they all belonged to them, went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who was around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, that he shall take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze, for they are holy, and you scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets for a plating of the altar, since they did present them before the Lord, and they are holy, and they shall be for a sign to the sons of Israel." Pretty devastating judgment. I can't imagine uh, seeing it as to what must have been kind of a disturbing event. I can assure you that had I been there and had I seen it and had you been there and had you seen it, I believe you and I would have concluded some things. Moses is really God's anointed and speaking against Moses and trying to come against him and Aaron is not a good idea. You would have thought they would have figured that out, right? You would have thought that they would have said, hey, whatever it is that Korah was doing, the Lord didn't like it, and he got judged. And in fact, that's the way Moses puts this. He says, by this act, it won't be that I was called of God. It will be that they spurned the Lord. Boom. They obviously spurned the Lord. The scripture tells us, and this is a classic teaching of all spiritual teachers, especially Torah teachers. When you go to teach a person the scripture and spiritual things, you're not to be bringing them to you. You're to be presenting them to the Lord. That whatever spiritual teaching that we may do, it's to bring you and Put you before the Lord, not to bring you and get you to follow me. Now it's very, very difficult for people to get this because it's a natural tendency for the student to think highly of that which he sees before him and he hears with his ears and that he loves with his heart and, and all he sees is his teacher and it's a little bit like children. You know, they, their world is just their parents. They know there's other people in the world but, and they know that eventually they're going to grow up and live in the world, but, but there's such a bond between teacher and student that it's used, you know, to teach with, but that's not the goal. Moses' goal was not to bring the affections of Israel to himself. His goal was to bring the children of Israel and present them before the Lord. And even in the case of this conflict, when they came against him, he was being wise and careful and to make sure that it's the people who are coming before the Lord, not before the teacher. And that is counsel to any leader who may be in a dispute to always be mindful. I'm not seeking the desire of the people to me. I'm rather seeking that the people's desire will be toward God. And so however we're going to resolve this conflict, and whatever complaints may be, it will be, that's our ultimate goal. That's the objective that is to be completed. Now you heard Moses say, do this, take censers, this thing that belongs to the great, this duty of the great high priest, this object, and by the way, the only censer that was actually permitted, according to God's commandment, is the one that was made as the holy vessels, only the one there that Aaron used, doesn't it sound a little off key, Moses would be saying, okay, all you guys bring your censers, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't you have thought they would have thought, hey, wait a minute, my censer is not anointed but I'm going to bring my censor in here. See, there's only one censor in there that's actually anointed. They forgot that part. They thought maybe they could get their censor qualified. They thought maybe they could qualify their censor. But they were, you know, and so they say that Moses was being very wise here because he knew which one God would support. The one he called for to be made after the pattern in heaven, not the one after the pattern of Korah's tent. So he was upon pretty safe ground. He knew what was going to come here. And that's the reason why he had great confidence, because he had built everything according to what the pattern of what God had said. He didn't come up with a design of sensors. It's what God had told him to do. And it was what God had instructed Aaron to do. And therefore, if these other guys bring these other sensors in, we know they're not going to make it. So it's pretty clear that Moses understood the meaning of these censors. Now, did you know that in the Scripture, this is the key issue that's talked about at the end of the age? This is the key controversy of the judgment of the household of God. It has to do with a particular censor. That's what's spoken of in the book of Revelation. It's a particular censor that will be the judgment point upon the final generation. To get to the book of Revelation, we've got to go first through Ezekiel chapter 9, where it talks about the judgment that is to be done. And if you will, uh, jump over there with me to Ezekiel 9 for a moment. In Ezekiel chapter 9 is the judgment that takes place upon the whole house of God as a result of certain abominations that are taking place. And it dispatches from the very beginning, and it says that there are a series of angels that come forth. Let me read from Ezekiel 9, verse 1. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which his face is faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case on his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. The fire that goes into the censer comes from the bronze altar. The coals that are in the censer must come from that altar. And so they go and they stay there. And then he gives, the Lord gives command for the judgment, verse 4, and the Lord said, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of all the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him, strike, Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children and women. Do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders, with the elders who were before the temple. I want you to remember that. With the elders who are before the temple. And... Ezekiel basically cries out, verse 8, he says, Alas, O Lord, O God, art thou destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out thy wrath on Jerusalem? You remember how Moses begged for the life of Israel? O God, will you destroy the whole congregation? Here's Ezekiel. O God, will you destroy the whole remnant, everyone who believes? See the parallel? But the real parallel is the censor. Because if you back up one chapter which set the stage, and I want you to remember, it was the elders. He begins first with the elders who were before there. Chapter 8, verse 11, describing the abominations, here's what he says. And standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel, with Jehazaniah and the son of Zaphon standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand. There's only one censor that's used in the temple. We've already learned this lesson. But it says there's going to be another abomination. There's going to be another judgment, a very fierce judgment, that will come at the end of the age, that has to do with, again, each man holding his censor in his hand. Each man is attempting to entreat God, to influence God's decisions and things, instead of following what God said. And it will be a rebellion. It will be an apostasy. It will be sin that originates all the way and it rises all the way up into the elders of Israel. The 70 elders. And It says judgment starts there. With them. Just like the pattern back in the wilderness. Korah was a man of renown. A man of much esteem. It's from the men of renown, the men of esteem, that the judgment will hit first. Because they're in the position to do such a grievous sin. And you know what the sages call all of this? Sin unto death. This is the sin unto death. When the scripture talks about in the New Testament, if a man commits a sin unto death, you know what they're talking about? Rebellion. Rebellion against God. They think that they can take their censor before God in lieu of God's anointed. Now, I'm not talking about, and I'm not making application in the New Testament faith about a little church split or it's about somebody, you know, rising up against the pastor. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about at the end of the age that there will be a rebellion against the true great high priest after the order of Melchizedek and his censor. And they will come thinking that they can have authority over him. And let's make him something less. I got news for you, folks. Within regard to the modern day church and our brethren today, they're on the brink of this. They think that they are above the Messiah, they think that they can give new commandments and new instructions, and they don't want to remember the past of what was said and done with regard to Yeshua. They want a new sacrifice and a new way of salvation. They want a new kind of ministry, a new kind of organization, a new way to do this. They want to change the past. And it says at the end of time there will be a great rebellion, a great apostasy, and the one they'll be coming against is the Messiah Yeshua himself. And they'll want to present their censors in lieu of his. They'll be entreating God and say, oh God, show us who is holy, who's really in charge. We want to be in charge. Now follow over with me to the book of Revelation, where it gives the specific Prophecy. In Revelation chapter 8, there's a particular vision that John gives to us, and it comes at the time of the seventh seal, specifically it's in conjunction with the description of that, chapter 8, verse 1, and when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in the heaven for a space of half an hour. And then he begins to talk about the the uh, angels. He sees some angels, seven trumpet angels. And then he sees another angel. Verse 3, And another angel came, stood at the altar. Remember what we use the altar for. Holding a golden censer. Much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and he threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now what is that? What do you mean, what do you mean he threw it to the earth? What, what is that all about? You have to go back to that story back there in Numbers again. Because it's what happens after the judgment upon Korah that something else happens to the censor of Aaron. You see, as I said to you before, had you and I been there before, we would have surely said, well, um, uh, you know, God didn't like Dathan and Aviram and Korah for the things they did. And obviously, whatever Moses had been saying to him, it must be true. Um, and so there shouldn't be any question about that, right? I mean, we just saw Dathan, Aviram, the earth opened up, and they were buried alive. Okay? There shouldn't be any question that God did this. Okay? However, what happens the very next day? Look at verse 41 of chapter 16. But on the next day, what does the congregation do? All the congregation, the sons of Israel, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And I'd like you to put in the words again, saying, You are the ones who caused the death of the Lord's people. Wait a minute. I thought we just got through. You know, we're trying to deal with truth, remember? Let's see. Who caused I'm, Obviously, Moses had a backhoe and had opened the earth up and then put one of those uh, uh, little uh, uh, sheathy things over it, covered it with a little dust. He got Dathan and Naviram to fall in, and they fell in a pit. Obviously, Moses did all that. I don't think so. So why are they saying that? Why do they say that? It's not true. But the whole congregation wants to believe it. So, it says, It came about, however, when the congregation has assembled against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Hang on for just a second. We have to understand, how did they come to the tent of meeting? The whole congregation, the house of Israel, decided to go to the tent of meeting where Moses is at in a very contemptuous manner. Going back into the past, God had said, when he set up the sanctuary, if you ever approach my altar and my tent of meeting in a contemptuous manner, in that day you will die. You will come to this tent of meeting, my house, in a reverent, quiet An invited way. Now let me give you in perspective exactly what this means. You're in your house, and you've had your neighbor come over to your house many times. You've invited him, you've done business with him, so forth. But you get the word that your neighbor is extremely angry with you, and he's planning on coming over to your house, and he's going to barge right through the front door, and he's going to give it to you. What? do you do? Well, according to the law, you can shoot the guy as he crosses through the threshold of the front door. If you believe he's coming to do bodily harm in a contemptuous manner and kinda come and do harm to you or your family, you have the right to defend your house. That once you hit that turf inside that threshold of that door, you are subject to the guy that owns the house. Guess what the Lord said? You come here and approach this ground in a contemptuous manner, you are subject to me. Because I don't have to put up with that. That's it. And guess what the whole congregation... You know, Moses just pled for them the other day to save them. Here they come. The whole congregation. The scripture says that... uh, Verse 45, get away from among this congregation, I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, listen to this, take your censer, put in it fire from the altar and lay incense on it, then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone forth from the Lord and the plague has already begun." Now, according to the traditional teaching of this, this is what happened. Here's Moses, Aaron. They're on their faces before God. Immediately, Aaron got up. He grabbed his censer. immediately went over. He got some coals off of the altar. He immediately went in and got some incense. He dumped it into the thing. And then he ran out of the tent of meeting. And it says that he began to run through the crowds of Israel he had to really run hard because the, the, the death that was sweeping through the assembly, he had to chase the line of death and get in front of it. That the death was literally moving through the whole crowd. And he had to run to sprint to get to where the line of death was and hold the censer out so it would stop the death. It was a race. 14,700 sons of Israel lost the race. 14,700. It was just 250 the day before. Now, if you were to see 14,700 people dead in one place, they'd all congregated in one place and they all fell dead, it would have been quite a scene. That's a lot of people. That's more people than, say, a basketball gymnasium. In the short time that it took for Aaron to grab his censer and get out there, there was a whole bunch of people who died, a whole bunch of people who lived. But that's how quick it was. Back in Revelation 8, the timing of the censer that is thrown is supposed to be concurrent at the time that judgment falls on the household of God you know just like what it said there in ezekiel 9 you see the first set of seven angels that go out and the great tribulation are not the seven seal angels or trumpet angels or plague angels the first seven are the ezekiel 9 angels six of them go out to slay all those who have participated and been a part of the abomination who have been part of the great rebellion against the great high priest who have committed abominations with other gods. And if you look at Ezekiel 8, it says specifically that people will commit abominations with the gods of Egypt again. They will have done it with the Roman gods and with the Babylonian gods. They will have done it with them all, all at the same time, right in the sanctuary. And they're all rebelling. And it says that God will, this time, we don't have anybody down. We don't have an Aaron says so this time the censor that blocks the death is the one that comes from heaven in the temple service up there, and it has to be thrown to the earth to stop the plague. See, that event that happened in the wilderness is a test, something that's going to happen in the future to the last generation in the Great Tribulation. The scriptures have given it very clearly to us. So that when we see it, we'll understand why. Now, while we've been sitting here this day, considering this passage of Scripture about Korah and his rebellion, and about God and how he responded, and what Moses and Aaron did, and so forth, and we're all sitting kind of academically looking at it from the third person, saying, Well, that's kind of interesting, and so forth there. The fact is, you and I are going to see this. Not only it's going to happen to our brethren, it's going to happen in the midst of our congregation, our assembly the one that will be here in the world, the one we're going to be involved with. So what are the lessons that we should be learning from it? Maybe we should be very careful about speaking against God's anointed. Maybe we should be very careful with regard to remembering the past and bringing our faith forward into this day and not eliminating God from it. And maybe we should be very careful about not participating in the abominations that are taking place. That rather, we should be preparing our hearts to see a great judgment. I really believe... In fact, turn with me there for the last verse for this message. 1 Thessalonians 4. The verse about everybody likes to quote for the second coming. 1 Thessalonians 4. They usually like to read from verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, and so forth. But... Really, to understand the context of this passage, you have to go back to verse 13. In verse 13, it says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Yeshua died, rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Yeshua. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then it goes on to say, it says they're going to be resurrected, and it's verse 18, says, Therefore comfort one another with these words. If this is supposed to be such a great event, and we're supposed to be so happy, why do we comfort one another with these words? Why, why is this instruction given to us to comfort one another with these words? Because, brethren, at the start of the great tribulation, When the judgment falls upon the household of God and you see the severity of God's judgment, even on the people who used to be sitting with you, walking with you, talking with you, you called brethren, and they were instantly consumed, you're told not to weep for them because they have the hope and you have the hope of the resurrection. And that when he has finally come back, they'll be raised. But their behavior has been judged. And you are to comfort one another knowing they'll be raised by the Lord later. But they're not going to be here now. They're not going to cause any more problem because God said he was going to clean his house. Now, this is a very unpopular teaching because the average Christian would like to believe God doesn't judge us wrong, that's twisting the truth. The truth of the matter is, the scripture says, God is not mocked by any man, and that we will all give an account, and every one of our words will be brought into judgment. And if somebody, I don't care if you are a believer, you want to participate in the abomination of desolation in this world, you're going to suffer the consequences the Bible says that's going to happen with it. I don't care if you're a believer or not. Now, if you're a believer, well, praise God, you get to be resurrected with the rest of the saints and so forth. I don't believe that my ancestors went to hell in the wilderness. I believe they were judged very severely, but I believe they had a covenant with God and they had a redeemer. But God is not going to tolerate that nonsense that was going on in the wilderness. And my hope is in the resurrection that the work of the Redeemer will cover even those sins. And the same would be true instead of us in our day. But the fact remains, just because you have a covenant with God and the assurance of the resurrection and the Lamb of God covering for you does not mean you have a license to misbehave and bring disfavor to the name of God now. You will still be subject and accountable to those behaviors and those actions. It was within the ranks of Israel that the greatest rebellion ever took place. The greatest rebellion was amongst the princes of the people. Now we, the congregation of the living God in this day, who will be leading the great rebellion of the abomination of desolation? Elders. Princes and leaders from our own congregation of faith. It's called the great apostasy, the great falling away of faith. And how does an apostasy take place? It requires leaders to lead it. In fact, the Hebrew word for apostasy means the harlot's wages the leaders will sell the body of the Messiah out for a price. They'll sell the body out for a price. And you know what the Torah says about harlot's wages. None of it is acceptable in his sanctuary. None of it. And it will be removed and it will be cleaned out. And so we have the great prophecy of the apostasy, the judgment upon the household of God. And the scripture is very clear. This is the first judgment at the end of the age. This is the first judgment in the great tribulation. A lot of people tend to think about those judgments, and they say, well, it's the seals and the trumps. Uh, Sorry, there's one in front of that one. One about us. God is going to clean his house before he touches a single heathen. All of those conflict lessons that we're learning now, all of the rebellion issues that we may be dealing with now, there are preparation and training and testing to get us ready for the big one. Because the big one that's coming is they're actually going to reject God's anointed, the Messiah himself. And you would say, well, such a thing is not possible. I got news for you. Look back at the history of Israel and explain this to me. How is it possible For Dathan and Aviram and Korah to be judged on one day, swallowed up by the earth, and the very next day, the whole congregation comes in a contemptuous manner before God. How is it possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. Because they twisted the truth. And that's what we'll, we'll see. We'll see the truth twisted. And they will forget what happened the day before. They will forget the past. They will forget the promises of God They will forget what God has already done. And in this particular case, God already did it in the wilderness, has already prophesied it to be, and they will have forgotten the Torah. Obviously, the key to us is to remember and to be ready for it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for the teaching of Korah, whose name is synonymous with rebellion. But, Lord, we're also reminded and we're encouraged by the fact that the sons of Korah, those who came later, wrote some of the greatest psalms that we have in the Scripture and the greatest praise and worship of you. Lord, we are a people who have the seeds of rebellion in us, but we don't want to rebel. We want to be found obedient, trusting, following you. And Lord, we want to be used of you to encourage others to not rebel against the Lord, but to believe the Lord. And we know that believing means that we have to have faith, we have to love, we have to obey your greatest commandment, and we must have the hope of you coming soon. So Lord, we renew our faith, our love, and our hope toward you. And we ask God that you make, make us wise unto all of these things, wise unto your prophecies, wise unto the teaching of Moses. Lord, let our lives be like the sweet incense that comes up before the golden altar in its proper time and place. And we know that the one who brings the sweet fragrance of our prayers in our life is our great high priest who goes into the one in heaven And presents them there on the golden altar. Lord, we don't want to come in and present our own censer. And to assert ourselves equal to or above the Messiah. Your great high priest. Rather, Lord, we would want to be found to be your servants. Obeying your word. The instruction of Moses. The instruction of your son and the apostles. So we ask, Lord, for... Guidance and strength in those things. Strengthen our will, Lord, to do good and to obey. Strengthen us, Lord, so that we are able to complete it. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua Messiah. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office box seven two zero nine six eight Norman, Oklahoma seven three zero seven zero. Our web address is WW dot dot net. Thank you.